The fact that I had encouraged my then-girlfriend to have an abortion had always haunted me. In fact, it tormented me. I don't remember when I found out I was adopted. I guess I've just always known. I remember when my dad told me that he'd encouraged my mom to get an abortion. It kind of rocked her. All I'd ever wanted to be was a mom. All my mom wanted to be was this a mom. When Rachel found out she wasn't going to be able to have kids, we immediately thought of adoption. But then I got pregnant. And then again. And again. Even though my mom was able to have kids, our family still felt incomplete. I still remember the day we brought Ezekiel home from the hospital. It was cool. The book of Isaiah says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, for you are mine. It's hard to describe the kind of joy that Ezekiel has brought into our lives. It's like the Lord redeemed what I had destroyed. My son-in-law was adopted, redeemed. My grandson, adopted, redeemed. I used to be in my birth mom's tummy, but the doctor took me out and gave me to my mom, Rachel. Four grandsons. What joy. Redemption. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Redemption is a beautiful thing, and our God is the best at redeeming things and people and life situations. Today, we're going to talk about some really delicate um, areas that God brings redemption to. And hopefully, by the time we get through the end of this message, you will see a picture of your God in, in a fresh way. And not only see your God, but see what your God can do for you. Today, we will address uh, some issues that generally aren't talked about much uh, in public. Some of you carry some of these burdens and some of the weight of decisions that you've made and regrets and sins of your past that really just have haunted you for a very, very long time. My hope is this, that, that you will experience grace and you will come to a point in your life with Christ during this ser- service as a result of the Spirit's leading that will allow you to take some of this past junk that haunts you, that has chained you, that has locked you up for a very long time and caused you to be less than what Christ wants you to be in this walk with him. And you'll let it come to the surface because I'm convinced that darkness has to come to light in order for freedom to surface. So today we'll walk through some really challenging issues. And we're going to walk through this myth and try to debunk this myth and be quite frank with you, I'm, I'm worn out um, after two services of sharing this because it's, it's, it, it needs to be shared, yet it's very, very, very challenging. And, but I know, even I've already experienced through some conversations with people, some people who've experienced great freedom, even in this morning. So I can't even imagine what God wants to do through the rest of this week. So the myth is this, if I take a life, I go to hell. We're going to talk about things such as uh, suicide today. We're going to talk about war and killing someone in war. We're going to talk about policemen in the line of duty killing someone. We're going to talk about capital punishment. We're going to address um, issues of abortion. And all these issues have to deal with death. And we're going to ask the hard questions. What happens as a result of that? Do those things disqualify me for salvation? Do they keep me from an eternal relationship with Christ? And do I stop short of that because of this past thing that I've done, taken away of life that somehow 
doesn't allow me eternity in heaven with God? Do I go to hell if I take a life? Here's what I know to be true. And I know this from the bottom of my heart, from experiencing it in conversations with Grace Community people, even after this morning, after engaging some people post and pre-services. After being the pastor for 15 years of Grace Community, there are people in this room that need to hear this message. And you need to hear it today. There are individuals in this room that are chained and held captive by Satan with lies and myths that just aren't true. They're just not true. And my hope today is this, that something clicks inside of you and you listen to the spirit of God. And for the first time, you you stop listening to the voices of Satan and you say, God, I'm gonna listen to you. This is truth. This isn't truth. And maybe for the first time in your life, you'll be able to surface this hidden sin, this secret thing that you've allowed to, to stay, remain attached to you for far, far too long. And you bring it to light and finally you overcome this burden, this weight and this undue guilt that you've placed upon yourself. But there are secrets in this room that must surface for freedom to be unleashed and for, for broken lives to be redeemed. I also know on a personal level from many conversations that many of you want answers to the topics that I'm going to address today and the weeks to come. I also know that clarity and light must be brought to these issues in order for you to experience the truth of God's word. I won't apologize for anything I say today. And I know that some of these things I'll say will make you uncomfortable, but I'm okay with that. Some of you will hear things that I'm saying and won't agree with me. I'm okay with that too. It never stopped me before. I'm just going to share what I believe what God's word is and I'm going to walk through and hopefully you'll see from the, my heart to you that I want to give this in a spirit of love and a spirit of truth so that you can take this information and you can apply it to your life. You can let the spirit of God convict and, 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 and speak to you and you can take God's word and you can determine on your own what is true. What I'm fearful of is that we have these theologies that we've developed and built and they're kind of hodgepodge. We, we've been in a time of crises and we've heard this person say this and this person said that and well, that sounded good and felt good and, and this person said this and this is what I believe to be true and all these theologies that we form regarding life and death and taking death have been formed in ways that, that aren't biblically correct. And so today I'm gonna to show you what I believe to be true from God's word and hopefully you'll see that too. So the myth is this, if I take a life, I go to hell. I think we need to begin with a truth in the Ten Commandments. So grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. If you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Our ushers will be glad to place one in your hand. And while you're doing that, I also encourage you to grab a pen and grab the insert in the bulletin and take notes. There will be a lot of information that we give today, but I will guarantee you That this information you will use, if not this day and discussing it with someone else, you'll use it down the road. Teenagers, I encourage you to take notes. You will have friends that will face these same issues that you'll want to give answers to. Instead of just saying, this is what I think, let me ask someone else. You'll be able to defend what you believe through God's word. So I encourage you to take notes today also. But turn to Exodus chapter 20 and let's look at verse 13. When you find that, stand with me. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. In Exodus chapter 20, we have what we call the Ten Commandments. In commandment number six, 
jumps out. It really is the foundation of what we're going to talk about today. And we need to address first this commandment and see what it really says. Gen, or Exodus chapter 20 in verse 13. Read this out loud with me. Ready? Read. You shall not murder. Read it again. You shall not murder. One more time. You shall not murder. You may have a seat. By the way, let me just say this about the Ten Commandments. The commandments were given to us to reveal to us that we're all lawbreakers. That we can't live up to these, that that we have this sin nature in us. They're given to us to live by. And after you look at these, you will soon find out that you and I are lawbreakers. They're there for us to reveal that we need a redeemer. Because we could never live up to these because we're sinful people. So we can't live up to these. So they're there as a, as a benchmark. We're not supposed to do these things. And when we do them, we're in need of a redeemer because we've committed a sin. What does this passage say? You shall not murder. Let me, let me go left of this just for a second. The NIV translate this, you shall not murder, which I believe is the best translation of this word. It's the Hebrew word ratash. The King James Bible... I believe there's a poor job. King James is a great Bible, by the way. But I believe they have a poor translation of this commandment. If you have a King James Bible, it says, you shall not kill. And if you look in the New Testament, where we'll go to, it says, you shall not murder. 47 times this Hebrew word is used in the Bible. And every single time the word murder is translated for the Hebrew word ratash. So let's just lay that out there. This communicates to us, and and, and this commandment has been greatly misunderstood on many levels. And the resulting misunderstanding has led to serious errors, maybe in your philosophy of theology regarding life after death, or even on, on death itself. Does this commandment, does it say that we, that, that, or does it forbid all killing? Does the sixth commandment forbid all? All killing. Thou shalt not murder. Does it say thou shalt not kill? Is the taking of another human life always sinful and wrong in God's sight? That's the premise that we're, we're looking at and we're trying to break down or build upon. Is this a myth? And I'm going to show you today what I believe to be true. I'm going to show you that I believe there are times and there are reasons that... Killing is justified in the word of God. And I'm going to show you what I mean by that. First, let me just lay out some some facts that are recorded in the Bible. Is it wrong for the government authorities to execute a murderer? In other words, is it wrong in our world today? Is it wrong for Christians to build a philosophy of ministry that says that capital punishment is a biblical mandate by God? Is it wrong for us to believe that capital punishment is a mandate from God? Turn to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Please turn back to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Genesis 9 and verse 6 says this. Genesis 9 and verse 6 says this. Whoever sheds the what of man. What's the word? Blood of man. By man shall his, what, blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. If we just stop there in the Old Testament and say, 
is, are there instances or times when capital punishment is a biblical mandate? There it is. Look what it says. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. So if we just stop there, we can see that capital punishment is, the, is what should be given to someone who kills another man and sheds his blood. Some will say, well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Covenant? Turn to Romans chapter 13. Turn over in the New Testament to Romans chapter 13. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans 13. Romans 13, verses 1 through 5. Romans 13, 1 says this. Everyone must submit himself to the what? What's it say? Governing authorities. How many people should submit to the governing authorities? Everyone. Then it says this, for there is no authority except that which whom has established? God has established. Then it says this, the authorities that exist have been established by whom? Okay, stop. Let's pause. Just just real short. It says this, that the governing authorities that we have in our world that have been set up, the ones that we have as government that have been set up in our world have been established by God. God has put rulers and authorities in place and he has established them. Now, some of you say, well, how in the world can that be true? Here's how. God also tells us in in the the Old Testament, it says the heart of the king is in the hand of God and he directs its water course wherever it should go. In other words, the president of the United States is in the heart of hand of God and he eventually directs it where he wants it to go. With that being said, Romans also tells us that we're supposed to pray for our leaders. We're not supposed to say disparaging things about our leaders. We're supposed to pray for them. It also says that the heart of the king is in the hand of God. God has put and established the governments of our world. Read on with me. Then it says this. However, or consequently, Whitley, He who rebels against authority is rebelling against what, who? God has instituted. And those who do so will bring what on themselves? So if you do something that's anti-law, you broke the law, you have done it against God because he has established the governments that are in place. And so consequently, when you do something against the government that's a law-breaking thing, you've done it against God. Read on with me. Verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do what? Right. But for those who do wrong, do you want to be free from the fear of one in authority? Sure we do. Then do what is what? Right. And he will what? Commend you. In other words, here's if you do what the government wants you to do, the laws of the land, then you're okay. But if you do what you shouldn't do and do what is wrong, then you are held accountable for what is the result of doing that. For instance, in our world today, I believe in states that we are in, the laws of the land have set up. If you take a life, then the life that you've taken in some states have capital punishment. 
that your life will be taken to. And by God's authority listed here, if you follow the commands of Romans 13, tie that into Genesis chapter 9, then capital punishment is a biblical mandate that we could agree with or that I agree with through Scripture. Read on with me. Verse 4. For he is God's servant to do you good. The government's established, the authorities. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for what? Nothing. In other words, hey, he has this sword and he can do what he's supposed to do with it. It's just not a toy or a a, a souvenir that he keeps on his coffee table. If you do something that the law doesn't want you to do, he doesn't have this sword for nothing. Read on with me. He is God's servant, an agent of what? Wrath. To bring what? Punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities. Not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. So the question is this. Is it wrong for government authorities to execute a murder? Absolutely not. In fact, if you look through scripture, the laws of the land have been set up in certain states say, if you are... If you do a capital murder and your punishment in their states might be an execution. So is it okay for a Christian? Is it okay for me to believe in capital punishment? My view of this is yes. You might disagree with me. I'm okay with that. But when I look at the logic of scripture and I tie them together, we're held to, to obey the authorities of the land. And so there's an instance where the taking of a life is biblically correct in God's eyes. Other instances before we unfold this message today regarding life and death. Was it wrong for the Israelites to kill and utterly destroy the inhabitants of the promised land in Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 and 2? If we believe that you shouldn't kill anyone, was it wrong for the Israelites to wipe out all of them because God wanted them to? Did they do something That was anti-Bible, anti-God. Answer that question. You have to answer that question. By the way, Acts chapter 25 and verse 11, Paul acknowledged capital punishment. Here's what he said. He says, if I am an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I do not object to dying. Paul himself in the New Testament church believed in capital punishment by saying, if I have done anything worthy of death when he stood before Festus, he says, then take my life. He himself knew that he could have done something worthy of death. Another object to consider today. Here's a statement for you. Was it wrong for Saul and his army to kill and utterly destroy the Amalekites? Not only kill the Amalekites, but every man, every woman every infant and every animal in 1 Samuel 15. Was he wrong? Did he break God's law by wiping out all of them? Truth of the matter, God instructed him to do so. So is there ever time when taking a life sends you to hell? Or did he do something that he shouldn't have done? Give me another statement to consider. Was it wrong for God to kill and destroy every human being on planet earth? with the exception of eight people during the flood? Was it wrong for God or has he set himself outside and that was it wrong for him to just wipe out and kill people? 
Was it wrong for David, a story that we've heard, some of us since we've been about this tall, to kill Goliath, a man who defied the God of Israel? I mean, think about it. We cheer that and we dramatize it. And we let our little kids, and we're sitting in, in Kid City, and we're hearing the story, maybe set in Sunday school classes, and, and the, the giant comes out, and David, the underdog, takes a stone, and then he cuts off the head of Goliath, and we cheer. Was it wrong for David to take the life? Should he go to hell? And what's wrong with us? Why is it that we can cheer for some and not for others? How do we build your theology? Where do you go when you say it's okay to take a life and you don't go to hell? How do you build your theology? Or how about this one? Was it wrong for Phineas to take a javelin and thrust it through an Israelite man and his heathen lover, killing both of them? with one piercing blow in Numbers chapter 25? Was it wrong for Phineas to see this, this couple in intimacy and, and, and it was anti-God and God didn't want him to do that and he took a javelin and as they were intimate together, he drove it through the two of them. Should he go to hell because he took the life of two people or did God instruct him? Look at that passage in Numbers and you will see later that God commends him and blesses the Israelites. So is there ever a time And when you begin to build these cases, there's all kinds of cases that will just tear your case down. Was it wrong for Elijah to kill hundreds of the prophets of the false Baal? God Baal, was it? Was it? I mean, we look at that and we cheer and God wins. And meanwhile, all these prophets were just utterly destroyed. Is is that just like, that just happened like in the Old Testament and today we don't kill people? Was it wrong for the congregation of Israel to kill a man who gathered sticks on the Sabbath day. Was it wrong for them to go out and kill a man in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 to 36, and kill a man who was gathering sticks and working on the Sabbath and they killed him? Was it wrong for them to do that? Or how about this? Let's go today. Is it wrong for a policeman to use his gun and perhaps even kill someone in order to protect the innocent and enforce the law? Is it okay for them, to, him to take a life? Will he go to hell as a result of taking a life and he's standing in harm's way and he protects you and he takes his revolver or his handgun or he takes his tactical uh, arms and he kills someone? Is he wrong for doing that? Do you have a, the, a, a philosophy of, of ministry or theology that says it's okay? Or how about this one? Is it wrong for a soldier to kill someone on the battlefield? Is it wrong for a soldier to walk out and under the instruction of his superior and the laws of the land to stand in harm's way and to kill someone on the battlefield? Will that person go to hell as a result of doing that? Do you see how this, this is case? You must have a theology established that says, this is how I know that's true. Otherwise, you'll just grab this and you'll grab that and you'll grab this and you'll believe because that really feels good or this pertains to you because you have someone that's serving or you got someone that's doing this and you just kind of just, you take this hodgepodge theology. Let me just give this statement that I think will help all this out. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Now, let that run through your mind a little bit. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. And the sixth commandment says what? Thou shall not what? 
murder. The word is used 47 times in the Bible, and it always means murder. Is there a difference between killing and murder? Absolutely, yes. C.S. Lewis said something I thought was really interesting. He said this, all killing is no more murder than all sexual intercourse is adultery. All killing is no more murder than all sexual intercourse is adultery. In the right context of marriage, it's not adultery. There is a difference. Many times in the Old Testament, God commanded capital punishment for certain kinds of crimes. And many times you'll see in scripture that it is just and biblical to have to take the life of an individual. Okay, some of you are saying this message doesn't apply to me. I haven't murdered anybody and, uh, or killed anyone. Well, maybe you have done worse. Maybe you've done worse. Let me just ask a question here today. You don't have to raise your hand, but uh, how many of you have ever murdered someone? By the way, if we raised our hands, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Now you get to raise your hand. How many of you have ever murdered someone? Ross has been around for service, so he already knows the answer to this. You know what? You've all probably murdered someone. Everybody just moved to the right a little bit. You mean that's a murder and that's a murder? Well, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Guess what? You've all probably murdered someone. Matthew chapter 5. Let me just say this too about today's message. Please hear me through. Don't walk out on this. Sit through the whole message. And and, and by the time you get to the end, let the spirit of God just kind of just help you see what's truth. Just just hear me out today. Matthew chapter 5 and look at verse 21. Jesus said these words. He says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 during Moses' time. You have heard that it was said to people long ago. Do not what? Murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to what? Judgment. But he says, I tell you that anyone who is what? Angry with his brother will be subject to what? Now, if you took those two together and you looked at the original Greek, it's the same Greek word. It's the same judgment. It means do this and do this. You get the same thing. So if you look at this, if anyone is angry with his brother, somebody say, I don't have a brother. It was my sister, so I'm good. No, listen, it's, it's, it's human beings, okay? Look on, verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, he says, anyone who says to his brother, raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of what? Hell. Here's what that means. The word raka is, is a word that simply means saying something disparagingly, saying something empty-headed to someone. It, it, it sounds disgusting, but it was a word that meant total disgust towards someone. The word Fool, in the original, in the Greek, if you were to look at it, it's the Greek word moros. It's where we get the word moron. It's like if you say something to a brother or a Christ follower, a person calling them idiotic, and if you get so angry with your words that you let your words say disparaging things about a friend, a brother, you have done the very same thing and the same judgment comes to you as a murderer in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. 
Jesus always raised the bar. Somebody say, well, I'm okay on the sixth commandment. No, we're not. Because if we, Jesus says, anger in the devaluing of a human being with our words and action is the same as the sixth commandment. In other words, if you've ever done anything with your words in an angry way, in an ungodly way, and said it to someone, and you wish the worst upon that person and you told them what you thought and it wasn't very pretty and it was in an anger and then you had this, the, the, the taste and the spirit of raka and moras and you said that to someone, then you have done the very same thing as Exodus chapter 20 in verse 13. You have committed murder. Now, let me ask this question. How many of you have committed murder? Some of you still don't want to raise your hands. <laughs> So does that mean we're all going to hell? Does that mean that your beautiful son and your, your, your beautiful daughter and, 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 and your husband and your wife are going to hell? Does that mean that if we've taken a life, because it says we've murdered, Jesus raised the bar, so do we go to hell? We're all guilty. Let's move on from the sixth commandment and handle some of these issues that we're talking about. First one is this. If I or someone I know commits suicide... Do they go to hell? Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 17. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Please turn there. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 17. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 17 says this. Do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your what? Here's what that says. That there, it, the possibility exists that you and I die before our time. And this is often a verse that's referenced to someone who's taken their life, who's committed suicide. And so as a result of that, someone will go back and say, hey, the Bible says don't die before your time. And if you die before your time and you shortchange your life, then you will go to hell because you've taken the perfect will of God and you circumvented that and you stopped his will. And now because of that and your selfish act that you've done, you are going to hell as a result of committing suicide. Let me just say this. One of the primary reasons that this takes place, that suicide takes place, is people get so low and they get so depressed and they get so hopeless and they get to a point where they really believe that their life is not worth living any longer. And they even believe this. They'll even say, that we, I am better off taking my life and removing the burden from this world and everyone else, and everyone else will be much better off as a result of me exiting out. Let me tell you, if you're here today and you've surfaced those thoughts, you actually believe that lie today, let me just let you know that there is a loving God that loves you and sent his son Jesus Christ on the cross for you Don't take that step. Your life is valuable. You are marked with the image of God. God has a plan for your life. And there's hope in Jesus Christ. But you know what often happens during these times when someone takes their life? We try to figure out, give people an answer. And so here's the answer that often surfaces when someone says, Will my friend go to hell? Will my dad go to hell? Will my mom go to hell? Will my brother go to hell? Will my classmate go to hell because they've taken her life and they shortchanged and circumvented God's will? And so we'll often say this. People will say, I think they're going to hell because. 
And here's why you say, because they didn't have a chance to confess their sins. And so we believe this somehow. Because they didn't confess the sin before they died, that, that before they, they, they actually committed suicide, that they are going to hell. Do you realize how poor that logic is? For instance, suppose today on the way out of this building, you have a disagreement with someone. Maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's your sister or brother. And you get in a disagreement and you say something that, 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 that degrades them and sinful. So you leave and you get in the car and you drive out of here. And on your way out of County Road 21 or 19 or 36, and on your way out, you hit a car. And in the midst of hitting a car, you die in a car crash. Does that mean because you haven't confessed your sin before you died that you're going to hell? Do you see where this logic just breaks down? Or, for instance, I know this has happened. You're, imagine driving down the road and maybe that night... You were involved in, in pornography on the internet and you didn't take time to confess God. And you got up the next day and you're driving along and a tree falls on your vehicle, takes and snuffs out your life. And you didn't confess your sin before you died. And you had a relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you going to hell? Do you see how we built this theology on nothing? Listen, the only thing that sends you to eternity away from God into the pit of hell is lostness. It's not having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. Yet somehow we build this stuff in this theology that says, well, they took their life. And, and since they took their life then, and they didn't confess their sin and they shortchanged what God has wanted, then they are lost forever into the pit of hell. Listen, the only unforgivable sin are rejecting Christ. Mark 16, 16 shows that anyone who believes will be saved and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let me just talk a little bit about that quickly. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's a total rejection of God himself and the Trinity. It's saying, I don't believe that God is who he said he was. And not only don't I believe it, I reject his saving power and I reject him as my Lord and Savior. It's a continual rejection of of the Holy Spirit's prompting and wooing us, trying to win us over. Listen, the only people that blaspheme the Holy Spirit and rejection are people who don't know Christ. It's a rejection. It's pre-Christian. Let me also say this about suicide. Suicide is directly counter to the power of life that God has so strongly put into creation. Everywhere we look, we see life growing. Even in the most hostile environments, we see life growing. There's a survival instinct that God has placed in us. It's a gift from him. We want to survive when we're, if we're lost, if we've, we've been shipwrecked, if we've been plane wrecked, if we've been lost, we have this innate sense in us that God has placed in us to survive. We don't just cut our wrists when we're lost. God has placed it in us. It's this power of life to exist. If he had not placed that, that, this instinct survival mode in us, then we would kill each other all the time. Think through this a second with me. Where do you think this comes from? Where do you think the thought of death, the thought of killing the thought of destroying, the thought of, of taking your life comes from. It comes from Satan and his demonic host. 
He wants, the Bible says he comes to kill, still, and destroy. So the minute you begin to have those thoughts, they're from Satan. He's trying to destroy another image bearer of God. He's trying to take away what Christ had intended for you. He wants you to fall short of his intended plan. He wants you to take your life. God doesn't want you to take your life. Suicide goes against everything God has instituted into man's DNA. But the only thing that will separate you from an eternity in heaven is not having a life-saving relationship with Jesus Christ. A person not having a born-again relationship with Jesus will enter into hell. You might say, isn't suicide murder? Listen, the word of God says this, that once we're held in the hand of of eternal God with a perfect grip, that nothing can separate us from his hand. We could never earn our salvation if we were, everything was based upon us keeping our salvation and earning it, then all of us would fall short. So if you know someone, and I do, that was born again, they found themselves in a very weak moment. Maybe they were overcome with chemical depression. Maybe something came their way and it just seemed too big. And they took their life, yet they knew Jesus Christ. Here's what I know to be true. Listen to me. This is what I know to be true. This is what I see from God's word. If they had a life-saving relationship with Jesus prior to that, you will see them again in heaven. Throw away that theology that says that they're going to hell. It is nowhere in scripture, nowhere. Now, this is not God's ideal plan for them. And yes, they cut their life short, but Jesus' blood covers all of our sins. And if I don't believe that, then I got to throw away and cut out three quarters of my Bible. And by God's grace, we are all covered with his blood. Plus, how does one sin disqualify us from a life-saving relationship when the blood covers everything? So if you know someone, and I can think of a friend in high school, and I thought about him this week, had his whole life ahead of him, athletic and friendly and charismatic and had the world in front of him. Yet for some reason, he was all by himself and he took his life. And I was beginning to wonder, wonder what, what happened to him and why was he so desperate? And part of me even said, maybe I could have did something or done something. But here's what I know to be true based upon God's word. When he took his life, his next breath was in the presence of a loving, gracious God. Secondly, Since I've had an abortion and taken a human life, I will go to hell. First, let me say this. We all make foolish decisions. Ones that we regret for the rest of our lives. I want you to know, if you walk through this dark quarter of life, I know you live with pain. I also want you to know, from the get-go, that Jesus Christ died for every sin. Even that sin. 
And if you have had an abortion and asked God for forgiveness, listen to me loud and clear. You have been forgiven. If you went to God, you did something that you regret, listen to me, and you got on your knees and you asked the living God, please forgive me. Listen, you have been forgiven. And if Christ has forgiven you and chose not to remember that as far as the east from the west, then show, so should we as followers of Christ. We must be a community of grace. Did you hear me? You have been forgiven. God has forgiven you. And I know people who attend Grace Community Church who have walked down this dark quarter of life and have lived for many, many years with this secret sin that still haunts them. And they're afraid to surface it in community because with the fear of people judging them, pushing them out and looking at them in a a weird way. And so they live with this guilt. And what happens is Satan has continued to beat them up and they're less than what they should be in Christ because of a poor decision, a sinful act. Listen, we must help them to take the darkness and find light and find freedom. We must be people who listen and receive and say, I love you. In other words, if we don't, then this community and Christ's followers will never be all that they have intended, that Christ intended them to be. You must not let Satan riddle you with guilt. You must not let some super righteous Christian Pharisee riddle you with guilt. You must confess it to God and confess it to one another and be free once and for all. I want Grace Community to be a place where we share those stories and we respond in grace and truth and love so that people grow to be the people Christ intended them to be. Can I also say this? I believe through scripture, through the deduction of logic and the picture of Christ's love, and through some biblical understanding of my interpretation of 2 Samuel chapter 12, that if your child was aborted, at the moment that the last breath was breathed out of them, that they were in the, the next breath they breathed was in the presence of a loving God in heaven. I believe that with all of my heart. Let me also say this. If you have had an abortion or know someone that has then you need to just listen to the scripture and this is for you from me, from God's word. Ephesians chapter two and verse four says this, but God being rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Listen, We have a God of mercy and grace and he loves you. However, let me say this too. Human life is to be highly valued for we are made in the image 
of the glorious God. We live in a society which gives little respect to human life as demonstrated by the rampant abortion rate. But I firmly believe as the pastor of Grace Community Church that life begins at conception. Not three months, not one month, not one week, at conception. Life begins at conception. And it's a breathing life that God has breathed life into. And it is a living human being as soon as it's conceived. And be honest with you, I highly value political government authorities and leaders that believe that too. I respect their views. I believe in the sanctity of life. But we as Christians must devote our time and efforts for things we stand for and not what we stand against. Here's what I know to be true too. Someone in this service and people in the other services and women in this room still haven't forgiven themselves. You carry this burden because some boyfriend encouraged you to get an abortion, because some husband encouraged you to get an abortion, and you believe that God hasn't forgiven you. If you've confessed your sins, he's faithful and just to do his part and forgive you. Don't let this secret sin that the blood of Jesus Christ has covered at Calvary keep you from being less than your best for Jesus. It's time to experience the rich grace of a loving, merciful God. Thirdly, let me say this. If I've taken the life of an enemy in war, then I go to hell. Let me begin by saying this. While taking of a human life It's never to be taken lightly. Nevertheless, I believe this. This is my opinion, and you can disagree with me, and I'm okay that you disagree with me. The consistent teaching of Scripture is that there are times when the taking of human life is justified. In order to stop the spread of evil, the Bible is clear as far as I'm concerned and has authorized the government to enforce the law and punish offenders. Romans 13, 1 through 5 shows us that. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 8 says this, there is a time for war and there's a time for peace. Romans 12, 18, which most people go to to refute this, says this, if it is possible, make every effort to pursue peace. Listen to me. Peace is always the first thing to go after. Try to pursue it. Go with it with everything you got. Try to get peace. But the word says this, if it is possible on every occasion, pursue peace. It means that there are times it is not possible. I know this is hard information for some, But I have to ask this question. Was Jesus a pacifist? How would I answer that question? I'm not asking you to answer that question. 
And I know some of you would, would, would come to a different spot, but this is what I believe. Don't throw stones at me. This is what I believe. I'll probably get stoned tomorrow, but I believe this with all of my heart. I don't think he was. Because twice in the New Testament, he cleansed the temple by force. It says that he made a whip. He went in and he cleansed the temple because of the evil that was pervading it. Listen to me. It doesn't say he politely went and asked, pretty please, would you get out of here? Jesus went in with force because he couldn't stand the evil that was there. And he took a whip and he cleansed the temple. They were in the wrong place and he forced them out. Luke chapter 22 and verse 36 says this. Jesus once told his disciples, he said, sell your coats and buy a sword. If you look at the context of that, my interpretation of that is this. He asked them to take a sword to defend themselves. He didn't ask them to buy a sword as a souvenir to put on their wall. He knew there would be times they needed to defend themselves. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. I want to show you why I believe this to be even more true. This often isn't brought into the discussion, but I want to bring it in today. Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 11. John says this. This is the second coming of Christ. You tell me what Jesus' view on war is. Revelation 19 and verse 11. John says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes what? His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in what? Blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. By the way, that's us and angelic messengers riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp what? Sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let me tell you what that means. That means there will be a time at the second coming of Christ where you and I will be mounted on horses, following behind our Savior, who has a sword in his hand, will have a sword in our hand, and we will be kicking Satan's butt and throwing him into hell. It won't be a peace party. So let me say this from the bottom of my heart with love. For those vets that are in this room, have submitted to authority of the government and have served in the military and because of that involvement you've had to take a life I say thank you and I am sorry that you've had to experience that you are not going to hell 
and you have not broken the sixth commandment. With that being said, there are many of you who have experienced and witnessed some horrific sights by just serving your government. And as a result of this involvement, carry a huge burden that you continue to suppress and you continue to bury. I want you to know that you have not sinned, but you have served your country well. Also for clarity's sake, I do believe that peace should be pursued at all costs before you stone me. And I also respect and value any stand that you take concerning war, whether you are non-combatant, whether you're a pacifist, or whether you're serving on the front lines, you are entitled to take whatever view you please. And you have my utmost respect. But please, honor mine. I'm not trying to divide. I'm just showing what I believe to be true by the word of God. I think the myth is busted. The only thing that sends you to hell is not having a life-saving relationship with the Redeemer called Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But in this room are people reeling from guilt, either because in the line of duty as a policeman they've had to take a life, or because you've experienced horrific things as a soldier in the U.S. Army, or because of regret or a sin in your life from the past that continues to haunt you, or because of some judgmental person that continues to beat you up. Listen to me. From the heart of our God and from my heart today, in order for you to find healing, to take the grace that God so freely wants to give you, your secret sin must come to light. You must learn to forgive yourself. You must believe that God has forgiven you. Jesus gave you life and he gave his life so that we could have life and freedom. Don't stay in darkness any longer. Satan has beaten you up long enough. It's time for darkness to come to light. Let me wrap this up by saying this. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. None. Father God, help us today. Help us to understand the truths. Help us to throw away our theology that's been built on straw. Help us to be people of grace. Help us to be open to hearing stories that people have carried for far too long. May we be receivers of grace and givers of grace so that this community can walk in the freedom that Christ intended them to walk.
help us to see that we're not guilty anymore, that we're not filthy anymore, that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be gloriously free. In Jesus' name, amen.